0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Donald Sherman of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, who argues that Donald Trump should be kept off the 2024 presidential election ballot under provisions of the Constitution's 14th Amendment? Jonah Minkoff Zern of Public Citizen, who discusses the breadth of George's indictment of Donald Trump and 18 co conspirators and the story it tells of a broad conspiracy to subvert U.S. democracy. And Mazen Kumsia, founder of the Palestine Institute for Biodiversity and Sustainability, who talks about the region's biodiverse ecosystem and the impact of the Israeli occupation on the area's environment. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: As the United States enters the Atlantic hurricane season, a recent scientific study found that people of color are the main victims of storms like Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Matthew in Florida. The study examined death records in the U.S. and found that 20,000 excess deaths from 179 named storms from 1988 to 2019 the loss of life among communities of color in the American South has increased as the climate crisis has intensified. The high death toll among black, brown, and indigenous residents from tropical storms is blamed on a long history of government neglect of these communities. Robbie Parks, a professor of environmental health sciences at Columbia University, told The Guardian, it's socially vulnerable communities that are bearing the brunt of post-hurricane excess deaths. Only 6% of all excess post-storm deaths between 1988 and 2019 occurred in the wealthiest counties. Racial and ethnic minority status stood out as the single biggest risk factor in excess deaths confirming earlier studies into post-disaster mortality. This is partly explained by the inequities in resources needed to access life-saving help in an emergency such as transport and medical insurance, as well as historic and systemic racism that affects access to housing, credit, and health care, among other factors. After a surge in rental prices triggered by the COVID pandemic, an increasing number of cities and counties across the U.S. are looking to adopt rent stabilization laws to protect tenants from massive rent increases. However, many of these cities face obstacles due to widespread state laws banning localities from imposing rent control regulations. The Stateline News Service reports that 200 local governments currently have rent control or rent stabilization policies in place. Maryland's suburban Montgomery County is one of three in the state to approve rent control ordinances this year. Rent control was included in an emergency order during the COVID pandemic, but after the emergency order was lifted, rent spiked and evictions surged. The new rent stabilization law caps rent increases to 6 percent a year. Rent regulation proposals were debated in 23 states this year, but there was little action to change the common bias against rent control. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill banning local rent control, and Montana approved a rent control ban on commercial and private properties. In more progressive Colorado, a bill to repeal the state's 40-year ban on local rent control died in committee. Similar bills to repeal rent control bans in Georgia, New Mexico, and North Carolina also failed to advance. Former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro is under investigation for his attempt to profit from the sale of expensive watches and jewelry, which were gifts given to him by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. As part of the probe, Brazilian police recently sought access to Bolsonaro's bank accounts citing suspicions that members of his inner circle had been selling off official gifts after spiriting some of them out of Brazil on the presidential jet. The gift sale scandal first emerged in October 2021 when customs officials at Sao Paulo's airport seized a pair of diamond earrings worth over $3 million. The earrings were carried by a military official traveling with one of Bolsonaro's key aides. The aide told police that the earrings were a present given by Saudi Arabia to then-First Lady Michelle Bolsonaro. Eight months after losing Brazil's presidential election, the former leader is mired in legal difficulties, including investigations into his anti-scientific handling of the COVID pandemic and his alleged role in instigating his supporters' January 8th violent attack in the nation's capital in Brasilia. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: It's been more than two and a half years since Donald Trump executed a multi-layered plot to overturn the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, culminating with a deadly January 6 insurrectionist assault on the U.S. Capitol that resulted in five deaths and hundreds of injuries. After the House Select Committee pursued their investigation into the failed coup attempt, Trump and many of his allies now face a federal and Georgia indictment for their role in the plot. Because of Trump's unprecedented efforts to subvert the Constitution and American democracy, there are growing calls for the disgraced former president to be barred from running for public office ever again under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that was adopted after the U.S. Civil War. That provision bars from office any person who swore an oath to support the Constitution of the United States as a federal or state officer— and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion. Many constitutional scholars agree on this interpretation of the 14th Amendment, including conservative former Judge J. Michael Ludig and law professors William Baud of the University of Chicago and Michael Stokes Paulson of the University of St. Thomas, both members of the right-wing Federalist Society. Your reporter spoke with Donald Sherman vice president and chief counsel with the group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, who explains the process of enforcing Trump's disqualification from the 2024 election
2: ballot. Section three of the 14th Amendment, as you said, was passed and ratified in the aftermath of the Civil War um, and was a tool to ensure that people who violated their oaths to defend the Constitution uh, were not afforded the opportunity to serve. In the government that they sought to overthrow again. And so, you know, in the aftermath of the Civil War, uh, we saw several people disqualified once this provision became the law of the land. So largely between the post-Reconstruction era and January 6, 2021, this provision of the Constitution was dormant. And then, uh, when Donald Trump fomented an insurrection against the, uh, against the United States to overturn a free and fair election, people started to ask questions about whether it was still applicable. And, you know, my, my organization um, was focused not on Donald Trump at the time, but, but simply on ensuring that insurrectionists, wherever they were, did not serve in government, so we brought a case in New Mexico, and we won a case in New Mexico, removing someone from office, a man named Coy Griffin, who was a part of the insurrection. He recruited people to come to Washington and recruited men to join the battle in Washington to overturn the election. And we brought a case against him in New Mexico, uh, and we won that case. And you know, there's lots of other people who engage in insurrection who you would seek to remove. From office or prevent from being put on ballots. But the moment that we find ourselves in is that Donald Trump, the insider of the insurrection, the chief insurrectionist, um, has put himself forward again to serve as president. We believe that the Constitution bars him and other insurrectionists from serving in government office, including the office of the president. And so we are prepared to meet that moment. And, you know, I I would just add that this is not a Partisan position. Obviously, in recent weeks, we've seen uh, legal experts across the ideological spectrum reach the same conclusion that we have.
0: Well, Donald, I wanted to move on to uh, how this thing will work on the ground. And sure, from what I'm hearing, each state will address the question of whether Donald Trump will appear on their state ballot in the 2024 presidential election that November. And I assume that whatever decision the state government makes through their secretaries of state, that those decisions could be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Is that the scenario we have coming up for us?
2: In summer substance, right? Either secretaries of state or election officials are going to put Trump on the ballot, and they'll likely be sued, or they will refuse to put Trump on the ballot, and they will likely be sued. I can't imagine that too many of them will end up getting sued, because I think, you know, at the end of the day— this issue needs to be resolved, and it will be elevated to the Supreme Court probably um, sooner than later, uh, depending on when the first uh, suit is filed and, and how that resolves. But yeah, I mean, you know, I imagine this is going to start at you know, a trial court and move its way up. And, and somewhere along the way, somebody's going to sue a secretary of state.
0: So we have a supermajority of extremist right-wing judges on the Supreme Court currently who really don't seem to adhere much to precedent, and some of them refer to themselves as originalists. What's your prediction about how the U.S. Supreme Court, with this super right-wing majority, how they come down on this question?
2: Well, I won't characterize the court except to say that to the extent that there are originalists on the court, I think the originalist argument for Donald Trump's disqualification is pretty strong. Right, as uh, professors Bowden Paulson laid out in their um, you know their excellent law review article, as my team and our co counsel at Crew litigated in New Mexico, there is a strong case, stronger than most, to be made against a former president because most of the former president's conduct happened in the light of day or was documented by the January 6th committee, but also means that there is ample evidence that can be acquired by a court to make that determination and hopefully will be considered by the Supreme Court when the issue reaches them. I'll just say this is not just about the 2024 election, but whether we have safe and uh, fair elections for the next 50, 100, 250 years.
0: That was Donald Sherman, vice president and chief counsel of the group, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. Find more analysis and commentary on barring Donald Trump from the 2024 election ballot by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. After more than two years of investigation, on August 14th, Fulton County, Georgia, District Attorney Fannie Willis filed a 41-count indictment against Donald Trump and 18 of his allies for their criminal enterprise to subvert Georgia's 2020 presidential election results. The charges are being brought under Georgia's Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. One of the most widely known pieces of evidence in the case is Trump's January 2, 2021 recorded call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Rafsenberger pressuring him to find 11,780 votes that would have given the twice-impeached president an illicit victory in the state's election. In contrast to Special Counsel Jack Smith's more narrow federal indictment of Trump, District Attorney Willis is the first to prosecute many of the key GOP operatives involved in Trump's multi-pronged conspiracy to launch a coup, defying the will of voters in the 2020 presidential election. The trial, whenever it happens, will likely be televised, And if Trump and his co-defendants are found guilty, they won't be eligible for a pardon until five years after they serve any prison sentence received. One threat to Trump's prosecution on the horizon is an effort by several GOP legislators to sanction District Attorney Willis under a new state law passed in May that creates a state commission with the power to sanction or oust prosecutors. Donald Trump's bond in Georgia has been set at $200,000. And he's been ordered to stop sending threatening social media messages to judges, prosecutors, and witnesses as he awaits trial. Your reporter spoke with Jonah Minkoff-Zern, co-director of Public Citizens Democracy Campaign, who discusses the breadth of the Georgia indictment and the story it tells of a broad conspiracy to subvert U.S. democracy.
3: So I think the, the breadth of what she's talking about here. In bringing up the repo charges is is impressive that she is looking at all the different pieces and how they fit together so um, the the charges that that uh, Jack Smith brings are are a different set of charges that are focused on the federal action, so they range from his actions including pressuring state legislators, but then go on to talk about. His attempt to use the DOJ to issue a false report, saying that these the fraudulent claims were true, pressuring Vice President Pence to stop Congress from certifying the election results, um, and then instigating the violent insurrection um, on January 6. So that that's what Jack Smith's um, indictments talk about. Fannie Willis's they talk about the machinery of all these pieces that range from co-conspirators ranging from people in the Oval Office to low-level Georgia functionaries, um, people like the Town Coffee election administrators who are part of this large conspiracy to overturn the legitimate outcome of the election. And I think what, what really strikes home to me in reading these indictments and talking about these indictments and looking at it is this wasn't one action. It wasn't Trump calling up his people to riot and violently attack our Capitol on January 6th. It was a series of predetermined malicious actions by him and a whole large pool of co-conspirators to overturn the outcome of our election, Um, an insurrection against our government um, and against our democracy, a really dangerous action by someone who is violating his oath of office to uphold our Constitution.
0: I did want to ask you about uh, a Georgia law that was recently passed by the Republican-controlled state legislature in Georgia It allowed a commission to remove prosecutors from office. And there was a lot of concern about this early on because Fannie Willis could be in the crosshairs of a Republican legislature that is enthralled to Donald Trump. She could be removed, potentially, if this commission were to convene. How much of a concern do you have that the Republicans in Georgia could do their best to sabotage this case?
3: I haven't heard, and I don't believe, that there's a real threat of sabotage uh, of this case moving forward um, through her removal through that process. And I apologize if I'm missing that could happen in a way that would undermine the ability to move forward the case. But I do think what that issue really gets at is just driving fear into democratically elected uh, legislators like like in Georgia and like in Florida, where DeSantis has moved forward to remove prosecutors. As part of a whole, this MAGA movement's ability, desire, passion um, to undermine our democracy. I mean, I think, you know, DeSantis is doing this in part to build his campaign to show that he is someone who's part of the MAGA movement. And that really is a dangerous thing, that this doesn't just stop at Trump, that there is a whole movement of of MAGA Republicans who are willing to do anything to threaten our democracy in order to advance their extreme agenda. And And their extreme agenda of attacking our freedoms in other ways, like our freedoms to choose our reproductive rights or our freedoms to address gun violence or our freedoms to have access to health care and Social Security and Medicare. Those are freedoms that are under attack by this movement. They're looking to advance the wealth and the power of a small group of white male wealthy people to kind of return to a day, to, to make America great again, as they would say, a movement to do that at the expense of the rest of us, at the expense of building a true multiracial, multigenerational democracy. And I think that, that it gets kind of at the root of our power, too, that we as a movement, what we're fighting for is that multiracial, multigenerational democracy that our country really can start to realize. Um, and I think that's, that's what scares them. And that's our power here is, is that if our movement is successful, that's, that's what we get. And I think the Biden administration re- represents that, that Biden is appointing and putting into positions of power a really wide array of diverse people who are moving forward justice, who are moving forward climate justice, who are moving forward an economic justice system that, that counters Reaganomics, where he looks at the rights of all Americans and the abilities of all Americans to see that succeed economically. Um, as a way of advancing our nation. So the anti-democratic movement that the MAGA movement represents that's under trial here in Georgia and by the DOJ and in New York, that movement is against our movement for justice.
0: That was Jonah Minkoff-Cern, co-director of Public Citizens Democracy Campaign. Find more news and analysis on Donald Trump's Georgia indictment by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The news from Palestine is almost always about the Israeli occupation and its terrible impact on all aspects of Palestinian families' daily lives. However, the following interview addresses a different set of issues in the West Bank, the region's richness in biodiversity, and the impact of Israel's occupation and colonialism on the area's environment. Mazen Kumsaya is a Palestinian-American professor who's taught genetics at a number of U.S. universities, including Yale, before moving back to Palestine in 2008. He's currently a professor at Bethlehem University, the first university founded in the occupied Palestinian territories, and he's also the founder of the Palestine Institute for Biodiversity and Sustainability. He and his wife invested in the institute's creation and Professor Kumsia serves as its volunteer director. The professor was recently on a summer speaking tour in the U.S. where he talked about his work and the latest political developments in Israel-Palestine. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with him about what makes the West Bank such a unique biodiverse ecosystem and the serious challenges the region now faces.
4: Palestine sits at the intersection of continents, so even uh, humans migrated out of Africa to the rest of the world uh, through Palestine. And this is why uh, all humans except those who remain in Africa have passed through Palestine. Our ancestors, collective ancestors of Europeans, Chinese, Native Americans are all Palestinian, essentially, in origin. But Palestine is also rich in biodiversity for another reason, which is that it is geographically and geologically interesting. as the lowest point on Earth, for example, near the Dead Sea, Jericho, and have high mountains, have uh, diverse climates within a very small area. So you get richness and biodiversity. This is why also Palestine uh, is part of the Fertile Crescent, where humans first developed agriculture around 12,000 years ago, domesticating both wild plants and wild animals in our area.
1: How has, have these different factors impacted the biodiversity, like climate change, and also, I guess, the occupation by Israel of the lands there and, you know, the military occupation, and also the settler occupation?
4: Of course, threats that uh, impact the environment globally, including climate change, pollution, overexploitation of natural resources, habitat destruction, invasive species. These are global threats that affect every country, including Palestine. In our situation, of course, we can add the sixth uh, threat, which is settler colonialism. And settler colonialism does impact the environment. These six major threats are interdependent. So there's climate justice issues, there's overexploitation of natural resources that's uneven and so forth. But let's give a few examples of how these things impact our environment. If I take, for example, the Palestinian villages and towns that were depopulated in 1948, when Israel uprooted over 500 Palestinian communities, uh, resulting in the largest post-World War II ethnic cleansing, now 8 million Palestinians are refugees. But anyway, when they did this in 1948 and 49, they also uprooted the trees around these villages, whether domestic trees like olives, figs, and almonds, and also wild trees like oaks, uh, hawthorn, and uh, carobs. And in place of all these trees they uprooted, uh, they made the monoculture of pine trees, European pine trees, and this was devastating to the Palestinian environment. This is one example. Another example is the diversion of the water from the Jordan River to the west that dried up the Jordan River Basin. So it's no longer a river. Actually, uh, Jordan River used to flow at 1,350 million cubic meters per year. Now it flows at about 20 million cubic meters per year, uh, which, which is basically a small stream, not a river. The third example is the draining of the wetlands and the lake of Hula in the north, which resulted in the loss of 219 species of animals. In addition, of course, to the removal of the Palestinian native indigenous communities around uh, Lake Hula and around the wetlands. This is what they call draining the swamps, so to speak. I hate the word swamps. It's wetlands, it's important for ecosystems, Uh, One could cite many, many other examples, but these are three examples uh, for the shortness of time.
1: So do a lot of students uh, work with you? And if so, is it just totally as a volunteer or can they do it as part of their coursework? And do you get help with the institute that way?
4: Yeah, so our institute uh, serves the community, children, uh, students at the universities, not just Bethlehem University, but other universities who come and work with us. They do research projects with us. Uh, They do internships with us. They can also volunteer with us. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, We also welcome international volunteers, by the way. We offer room and board for international volunteers and international students, interns, come and work on environmental issues or agricultural issues, issues like food sovereignty, seed banking, other things that help the local people. Uh, women cooperatives, tr- uh, children from kindergarten to high school. Uh, so th- so we have a lot of activities that need a lot of volunteers. That
0: was Mazen Kumsia, founder of the Palestine Institute for Biodiversity and Sustainability. Learn more about the Institute and its work by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. <laughs> and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WREK in Atlanta, Georgia, KPFT in Houston, Texas, KGHI in Westport, Washington, Dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad. And wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.